Hello, welcome back to the ancient art of modern warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, and today we're going to continue our discussion on just war. I want to warn you that this podcast is going to last a little bit longer than the 10 to 12 minutes we normally do. Before, I was presenting individual ideas for you to think about. Now it comes time for synthesis, and that will take longer. Previous podcasts discussed the principles and criteria of just war, both injustice in going to war, called jus ad bellum, and justice in the conduct of war, jus in bello. I was joined in the discussion on jus ad bellum by Father Brigadier General Pat Dolan, former Assistant Chief of Chaplains for the U.S. Army and author of the book Just War Theory and the Just War Debate. Recall that the criteria for jus ad bellum are right intent, proper authority, just cause, last resort, proportionality, and reasonable prospect of success. The principles of use in bellow are military necessity, humanity, and honor, and these form the basis for the laws and customs of war, sometimes called the laws of war, the laws of armed conflict, or international humanitarian law. These terms are not quite synonymous, but discriminating among these is for another podcast on another day. Building on the idea of discriminating among things, discrimination is another criterion of just war, which requires belligerence to avoid harming non-combatants. This is sometimes included as a separate element of jus ad bellum, but it can also be a sub-element of humanity. General Dolan provided examples of jus ad bellum criteria and mentioned how all elements were clearly present in some wars, such as the War of 1812, World War II, and the First Gulf War, even though some of those wars included some deviation from the jus in bello principles. But what about today? With the proliferation of proxy wars, anti-terrorism operations, and mercenaries, can we reasonably expect that we can meet all of the criteria for justice in going to war and justice in the conduct of war? In exploring that topic, I would like to use the example of recent actions between the United States and Iran, including the strike that killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani and the head of the Iranian proxy force in Iraq, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandi. To guide us through that, I'm once again joined by Chaplain Pat Dolan. Hello, Father Dolan. Hello, Chris. Good to be with you. So bottom line up front, Father Pat, have the actions of the United States regarding the Islamic Republic of Iran been consistent with just war principles? Chris, you, you bring up a good point, but it's a little bit more complex than a real quick yes or no, uh, because the several issues that you mentioned, like uh, mercenaries or proxy wars, uh, are not new issues. They've gone back even to the Roman Empire, and we've had examples of terrorism older than the Bible. So despite the less-than-perfect record of, of all nations, you know, kind of politics and war are messy, I can suggest that the U.S. actions with the Islamic Republic of Iran have been reasonably consistent with just war principles, consistent enough that this counts as a low-level conflict. Father Dolan, because neither one of us has a degree in international law, let's avoid the nuances of international law and focus on the more important considerations of whether U.S. actions are morally consistent with the just war tradition, as it's been known for a thousand years or more, and in light of recent developments. 
So before I ask you to explain why you think U.S. actions have been keeping with that just war tradition, I want to set the stage, so to speak, mentioning something that seems to have been missed in much of the discussion of the events of the past month or so. Whether or not a legal state of war exists between the United States and Iran, there have been a series of events between the two countries that are certainly warlike, and often involving military force or the abrogation of international law, both treaty law and customary law. This began with the violation of the U.S. Embassy in 1979 and taking hostage of internationally protected persons. This action might or might not have been instigated by Iran's new Revolutionary Council, but it was quickly approved by the Council and subsequently controlled by it. Such an attack was a violation of international law and could be considered an act of war. Some people regard this as the starting point for a de facto low-level war between the United States and the Republic of Iran, one that has continued since then, varying from open aggression to proxy actions and includes secret and open negotiations. These actions include the Hezbollah attack on the U.S. Marine Corps barracks in Lebanon, U.S. support for Iraq in the Iran-Iraq War of 1980-1990, through 1990, a series of provocations by the Iranian Air Force against U.S. Navy presence in the Persian Gulf, which led, in 1988, to the accidental destruction of an Iranian airliner by the U.S. Navy. The Clinton administration expanded economic warfare against Iran. After the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, the actions escalated. These include Iranian-sponsored terrorist and insurgent activity within Iraq directed against U.S. efforts at reconstruction and the Iraqi government itself. Iran has been accused of sponsoring Taliban terrorist activity in Afghanistan and is conducting a proxy war in Yemen sponsoring the Houthis against the Saudi Arabian-backed government. In 2011, the Iranians attempted the bombing and assassination of the Saudi ambassador on U.S. soil. In 2015, the Obama administration negotiated a nuclear deal which eased economic tensions, but in 2018, the Trump administration recognized that Iran was in material breach of that agreement and the U.S. withdrawal and reimposition of crippling sanctions in 2018. Reimposing sanctions caused an economic crisis in Iran and led to mass protests within Iran by the Iranian people. Iran responded by military attacks directed against the U.S. and our allies, conducted by Iranian proxies or the Revolutionary Guards, commanded by General Qasem Soleimani. In June, two oil tankers were attacked and a U.S. Navy drone was shot down. In July, a British tanker was seized. In September, a Saudi oil refinery was attacked by a missile strike launched from Iran. In December, a rocket attack by Iranian-sponsored militias hit a U.S. base in Iraq, killing an American citizen. Now, these are just some of the more noteworthy incidents. All in all, this timeline may not seem like much of an ongoing war. What this describes, however, fits in neatly with Clausewitz's description of limited war. This includes his position that negotiations between opposing states should continue, even during the conduct of military campaigns. Adding deliberate confusion to this is the element of proxy warfare. This masks accountability while retaining avenues for diplomatic engagement. All of these elements have been cited by the Russian General Gerasimov in his description of hybrid warfare, which he described as the modern form of war practiced by both the United States and Russia today. 
This all sets the stage for direct actions and counteractions that are the subject of our discussion here today with Father Dolan. So, Father Dolan, given this context, has the United States' recent actions established that we have been, in fact, if not by law, at war with Iran for some time now? In a word, yes. It's been a low-level conflict. It started with the embassy takeover, which was uh, an act of war, no matter how you slice it and all those things. But it's all been complicated by the bigger global picture. You had the Arab Spring activities in Tunisia, then spread to Libya, Egypt, Syria, and then the ISIS horror, Boko Haram, um, all other insurgent groups and things like that. And it's hard to say whether or not any of these are tied to Iran because they, they kind of come and go and they're a bit shadowy and they're, they're not national entities that have clear, direct bonds between one country and another. But this all affects our understanding and the conflict has been real and has been ongoing, even though it's been messy. In your opinion, then, has the United States generally met the use ad bellum criteria in getting to this point and justifying, then, that we can use use in bello principles in our actions towards Iran? Correct, because the United States has been a respondent in this thing, not an initiator. And they've done things that have cooperated with trying to defuse all these various things but they have not always been successful in doing that. But they, it has been a use ad bellum in our response to an aggression that was there. Again, starting with the takeover of the embassy. And that then allows, because it's been ongoing conflict, the use in bello activity of being able to strike at enemy targets. Although, of course, I, I agree with you on this. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have asked you to talk to me in spirit of total, total honesty to everybody listening. But in the spirit of Socratic dialogue, we also need to uh, bring up the counter arguments. And in this case, it's uh, mm -hmm. I'm going to use the argument written by Agnes Calamard, who is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Executions. And she denied the applicability of the law of war in this event or in her terms, she used the terms international humanitarian law. Instead, she maintains that international human rights law applied, saying, quote, the targeted killings of Qasem Soleimani and Abu Mahdi Muhandi are most likely violations of international law, including human rights law. How would you respond to that? The response I would give is that uh, these individuals have been antagonists to the United States in an actual low-level conflict. As such, they are legitimate targets and morally legitimate targets. One could argue the legality back and forth, but they are also using international law, including some of the human rights laws that the nations that they come from don't uh, respect and, and have not agreed to, to try and hide within civilian populations. They use any tool that they can to do that. In the process of doing that, however, they truly are a legitimate target because they have planned actions. They are continuing to plan actions uh, against the United States. 
So it's legitimate for the United States to try and remove that target, to remove that threat. Uh, I don't see anything different in that from what happened in World War II when uh, the United States was able to shoot down a plane that contained the senior military leader of the Japanese forces at the time. You're referring to the shoot-down of Admiral Yamamoto, who was individually targeted, but at the same time, he was clearly a legitimate military target. The idea of cutting off the head of the snake to be able to go after the original planners that give the orders to the foot soldiers out in the in the lines, whether it's a direct line of march, as in Napoleon's time, or whether it's more guerrilla warfare, as in the Vietnam activities, or uh, any of the ones that we've seen in the Middle East recently. Yeah, to go after the head of the snake is a very legitimate tactic that's been recognized for centuries. Certainly, if we'd had the opportunity to take out Adolf Hitler in 1943, who would have faulted us for it? Correct. Going back to Miss Kalmard's objection, even though she denies the applicability of the law of war to this action, she also claims that the strike violated use ad bellum criteria, and she uses the term use ad bellum of necessity and proportionality. I see two problems with her statement. First, she seems to be confusing a military action which would be governed by use in bello with the act of going to war or use ad bellum. The second is that she seems to have some confusion about the applicability and meaning of necessity and proportionality. Is this right, or am I missing or confusing something here? Well, I think she's confusing something, and that also we're missing uh, a part of the difference between a clear, outright, direct, everyone goes at each other's throat kind of war and this limited action war where people are trying to uh, kind of dance around the subject. And there, there are bigger issues that, that are involved in there, um, issues that involve not only politics and, and religion or non-religion as in state actions and things like that. However, what she's doing is, first of all, there, there's nothing about uh, necessity in the use ad bellum or you have a just cause, there's never any necessity that you have to go to war and things like that. It, when you're dealing with a low-level conflict that's ongoing and was not declared, but is still ongoing, is being pursued by the persons who initiated it originally, then you've got the, the difficulty of looking at, is it worth it to try and do certain actions that you think are going to reduce that low-level conflict or bring it to an end, but also may escalate that to a, a more intense level of conflict. I think that's what she's hinting at in proportionality, although it really is kind of risk versus benefit analysis rather than a proportionality one. Does that make sense to you? I think so, and, and I hope it makes sense to our listeners as well. As I understand what you're saying, then, that despite our best efforts to do good advanced planning, things may not turn out the way we planned or hoped. Although our best analysis would say that this should lead to a better end state, it may not work out that way, and we may not know until the action's completed. Correct. And that's, that's one of the difficulties, and that's why the various religions continue to uh, advocate against war, because there are all these 
possibilities that come up. To refocus, her definition of proportionality seems to be at odds with the just war definition. The just war definition being that the evils expected from going to war cannot be greater than the good outcome expected of military action, or I suppose the evils of not taking such action. Correct. Correct. Her use of proportionality seems more like the definition in the law of individual self-defense. In that situation, you cannot use lethal force against a non-lethal threat, but even there, you can use whatever lethal force is necessary, so long as you cease using force when the lethal threat no longer exists. So Exactly. Absolutely, exactly. And that's the thing that you, people refer to bringing a gun to a knife fight. Well, a knife fight is, is a lethal activity, and if you can bring a gun, if you can bring... Uh, you know, you, you show up with a 12-gauge shotgun pointed at someone's chest, and they've got a knife there. They may decide they really don't want to do this, and then you don't have to do any damage. But the intimidation, including overwhelming or disproportionate, as some would say, intimidation, becomes legitimate to get people to do what is right and work it out at that point. So what about the president's claim that any future action by Iran would be met with disproportionate response? Doesn't that seem to indicate abandoning the just war principles? Um, it doesn't abandon them, but I would suggest it goes beyond them into attempts at what we call deterrence. Just war principles are when you're already in the war kind of thing for Jews in Bellow and for a decision to, to go there once there's reason for it. And, and all the criteria are one thing. If you're already in a limited conflict, and you want to use a deterrent to try and stop it from going further, it's very legitimate to offer certain threats that could or could not work. The problem is, once you offer some of them, like line in the sand kind of issues, then sometimes you feel obligated to escalate whether or not you want to and things like that. So there's some real difficulties with that, but the very idea of offering disproportionate response uh, to try and stop it from escalating is uh, a negotiating technique. Uh, some, it works sometimes, works didn't. At the end of World War II, once the two nuclear bombs were dropped and Russia entered the war against Japan, that whole overwhelming sense was the idea of something that actually brought the Japanese leadership to the uh, to the table of peace. The, the idea and the intent behind it in, in terms of a moral issue is to try and do good by simply having a legitimate threat there that will not be activated unless bad things continue. Now, once those bad things continue and they decide to actually activate that, then it becomes another discussion, and there it becomes an issue to a certain extent of proportionality and to a certain extent of consequences. Now, how bad will the consequences be, or will the consequences actually be better? Those are things that it's, it's military strategists that can give us a better answer on some of those kinds of things. But the moral legitimacy of doing that is right. Part of this threat of disproportionate response is specifically directed at proxies. And recently, it looks like the international rules for proxy warfare are changing. The United States says it will no longer allow Iran, and I suppose others, to use 
lack of accountability or to claim lack of accountability for actions of their proxies and that we will take perhaps disproportionate response against the major actor for actions done by their proxies. How is this likely to change things? Okay, uh, it, it makes it a bit more complicated, particularly because it's hard to show real culpability when you're using a proxy agent. You have to show a pretty good connection back to there. And sadly, some of the ways of finding out those connections are fairly secret. And it's, it's hard to expose them and explain things. If someone makes a claim, and one of the interesting issues about the, many of the actors in the Middle East at the present time are they, they like to make claims. They like to have it on the uh, Internet or, or on the news media, uh, such as when Al-Qaeda claimed responsibility for the September 11th, 2001's attack on the U.S. They admitted that culpability. The problem is Al-Qaeda was not a nation state and couldn't do that in uh, couldn't be attacked in return very easily. That's why the U.S. at that point uh, negotiated with Afghanistan's Taliban government to try and get them to expel the perpetrators so that they could be held culpable. When Afghanistan deliberately and adamantly refused to do that, then they established a connection with the culpability. It, it's really, really hard to do that in large group arrangements because large groups are often unwilling to admit some of these things and so it's hard to give the proof especially when the proof has to come from somewhat clandestine uh, sources lest we betray the opportunity of gaining some more of that information it's it really is very 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 difficult the problem i see with the way that you're describing it is yeah we have to be able to uh, to to maintain justice in what we do, we have to clearly establish that we have a just cause in what we're doing it. For that, we need to be able to uh, really pierce the veil of accountability and however that needs to be done. If we want to take action against uh, a major power such as Iran for the actions of its proxies, then at least on the world stage, we have to be willing to open up and let them know why we've come to that conclusion and what the evidence is. And that may mean releasing classified information. Okay. So, that was the, the problem for uh, President George W. Bush when he went into Iraq in 2003. He had what he thought was very legitimate evidence of uh, not only chemical but nuclear materials there. And all of the Iraqi commanders believed that that evidence was true because Saddam Hussein was very effective at bluffing. But if all of the evidence that President Bush had and laid it out and gave us a reason, as has the United States, a reason to really believe that there was this imminent threat as a nation. Then he, had, he laid it out that, again, it wasn't believed by a lot of people. Secondly, even when we were in Iraq, and discovered cache after cache of chemical weapons because they were so dispersed, they weren't big enough a group for the to satisfy the, the various local news media. That's unfortunate. When you're trying to establish a case and the people that you're trying to establish it with uh, are reluctant to accept evidence that's presented, 
it becomes a real tough task. Let's move on from that just a little bit and uh, trying to wrap this up because we've been on for a long time here. But oh, yes. we've talked about the proxy warfare and the proxy conflicts between Iraq and, and the United States particularly. How can we use the Iran-United uh, States template in other potential proxy conflicts, such as those that might involve Russian quasi-mercenary activity? Uh, again, you'd have to establish the, the same kinds of direct relationship. Now, Russia and Ukraine has been pretty well established, but again, the evidence is not accepted by uh, certain groups. Establishing this while still trying to negotiate is a very difficult thing when all of them are in the UN Security Council with veto power. So it becomes a very, very tough act to pull off. The lessons that we learn is you need to be able to put forth a fairly conclusive argument and be prepared that no matter how conclusive you put it forth, others may still not accept it. Well, we've already gone on longer than is usual for these podcasts, but yes. there was no way we could make this any shorter. This is very, very complex. It's very, very pertinent. And in many ways, it synthesizes the information presented in previous podcasts. But there is one more thing I would like to talk about with you, and that's the notion of the continuing relevance of chivalry, which some, including the Department of Defense Law of War Manual, maintains as inseparable from honor and an essential principle for use in bellow. Previously, Colonel Altieri from the Air War College discussed the continuing applicability of honor in war, but you've told me that chivalry goes well beyond that, and especially beyond the idea of honor as it has been held in ancient Rome or more recent cultures in China, Japan, and Korea. I'd like to ask you to come back in a future podcast where we can talk just about those differences and why the notion of chivalry is so important today. Absolutely. I'd be delighted to do that for you and your listeners deserve any of these good discussions we can offer them. Okay. Thank you, Father Dolan. And thanks to you listeners for bearing with us in this longer podcast. Please join us next time for our next bite-sized seminar in the Citizens War College called The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.